All right, good morning. morning. Hey, my name is Doug, and I am uh, on staff here. I'm one of the pastors. I serve over at the East Campus as the campus pastor there, and it's a joy to be able to be with you this morning and to look at God's Word together. As you know, or maybe you don't know, if you're new or visiting, we're so glad that you're here. As a church, we're we're learning last couple of weeks, next, next few weeks ahead of us, focusing in on discipleship. What is a disciple? That's the big question for us as a church. It's an important question. As we just consider what it is that God has called us to, who we are as a people, what we want people to look like as they sort of grow into maturity of Christ at this church, we want to have a picture, an idea of what they ought to look like. So, what is a disciple? You saw it there in the video. I'll just start off real quick by reading the definition. Here it is. A forgiven child of God who's taking the next step to, to learn Jesus, to love Jesus, and to live Jesus. That's what a disciple is. Now, if you look at that definition, um, you will see there's sort of two different parts to the definition. There is the first part describes who a disciple is, a forgiven child of God. And then the second part describes what a disciple does takes the next step to learn, love, and to live Jesus. It's so important for us to see this. And when we started the series at the very beginning, the message was entitled, Being Before Doing. It's so important for us as a people that we remember that Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus extends an invitation for his disciples to come to him, comes 17 chapters before Jesus takes those very same disciples and says, you are to now go for me. Who a disciple is defines and shapes what a disciple does. It's so crucial for us as a people to see how this works. Oftentimes, our temptation can be, as Christians, is to flip those two. And and to make it seem as if our identity as a follower of Jesus comes primarily from our activity. But that's not the pattern that we see in the gospel. What we see is that our identity produces our activity. Okay? So, first week we looked at sort of that that focus, that being comes before doing. Then last week here at at Central Campus, you all looked at sort of that first sort of aspect that defines our activity as followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus are people who learn Jesus. This is probably, I would say, the most common understanding of what a disciple is. Somebody who looks to Jesus, who learns from him, who imitates him as he models and lives. We should imitate and reflect what we learn from Jesus. This week, our focus is to zoom in on what it means to love Jesus. What it means to love Jesus. Now, to do that, this morning, we're going to look at a passage in the Gospel of John, the very last chapter. So, if you have your Bibles open, I would encourage you to turn to John chapter 21. And I'm going to be looking at verses 1. I'll read verses 1 through 19. We're not going to look at every verse in this section this morning. In fact, uh, just a couple years ago, I preached on this very same passage and did it so expositionally. We're not going to do that this morning. It's going to be a little different, a little unusual. Um, So if you want to hear an exposition on John 21, go to the website, the podcast, and you can listen to that two years ago. Okay? 
This is an amazing passage. It is a passage for me that has been a slight fascination of mine for the last five years or so. It is an amazing story. It's awesome. And I cannot wait to read it with you this morning. So let's get after it, all right? John chapter 21, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. If you don't have your Bibles, I think the words are on the screen as well, all right? Let's take a look at what God's Word says for us. Here it is. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to, to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with the fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish that you've just caught.' So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we just uh, give you thanks and praise for the opportunity that we have right here and now to look at your word. Lord, we thank you for this word, which is eternal, which is true, and which um, we believe is going to be wildly helpful for us as we seek to live a life that is marked by love 
a life that is designed to glorify you. Lord, we just pray that you would take these words. Lord, would you write them on our very hearts and would you use them this morning to shape us to be the people you've made us to be. We ask all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Several years ago, my family and I moved into a new home. And uh, after we exchanged keys and all that type of stuff, we got the house. And uh, the, the owner gave us a couple of minutes to just walk around the house and sh- the yard and show us some of the different trees. There's a number of different trees on the property. And there was one huge tree in the front yard. There's actually two huge trees in the front yard. And um, when I saw this one, I knew immediately what it was. It was a ginkgo tree. It's a very unusual tree. It's a fascinating tree, okay? And um, I was a little worried when I first saw the ginkgo tree because there's a couple of things the ginkgo tree is known for. Um, Gary's helped me in my fascination with ginkgo trees. Thank you, Gary. Um, I th- the ginkgo tree is known for sort of two different things. One is something that I love. It is a tree that drops its leaves. It's a weird-shaped leaf. It's, leaf. it's kind of like a fan. And it drops its leaves all in one day. One day. And many of the trees in Iowa City that are ginkgo trees, they all drop oftentimes around that exact same day. So actually this past year I was driving back from East Campus to Central Campus for a meeting. My wife let me know that it's ginkgo day and I was like, I hadn't seen it happen before. And I was just elated and I stopped and just watching like a, like a snow shower, just leaves falling off of this massive tree. It's known for sort of how it drops its trees. But there's another thing that the ginkgo tree is known for. See, if you have a ginkgo tree, you want to make sure that you have a, the right ginkgo tree, okay? Um, I don't know who it was, but a number of years, somebody thought it would be a good idea to plant a bunch of female ginkgo trees in the University of Iowa campus. And as a, as a freshman, um, around, I don't know what time of year it was, spring, fall, probably spring, I remember walking through campus thinking to myself, what is that stench? What is that stench? It smelled like, and this is not an exaggeration, rancid vomit. And what it was was seeds, the fruit that the ginkgo tree, the female ginkgo tree produces had fallen and just been trampled on. And it's just, I think since, I don't know when, but I think they started to get rid of some of those trees. So the big question for me, when I found out that there was a massive ginkgo tree in this yard that I had just called my own, the big question was, Is it a female tree or is it a male tree? Because if it's a female tree, I might want to (laughs) refund. I might want to exchange this. Praise God, it was a male tree. No rancid vomit smelling in Fern's yard. At least not from the tree, okay? How do you tell the difference between the male tree and the female tree? Those little fruit-like seeds. It's important. You can visibly look a certain time of year, and you can see, you can smell the difference. There is a distinguishing feature that tells you the difference between the two. Now, as we consider what does it mean to be a disciple, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we launched the series, one of the questions we would have primarily been a- answering is, how do I know that I am a disciple of Jesus, forgiven child of God? One, one, of the, one of the ways, one of the, the, the questions that we might be sort of dancing around this morning is, how do others 
know that I am a follower of Jesus. The big idea sort of for our message this morning is that love is the distinguishing mark of Christian disciple. What's the distinguishing characteristic? How can you visibly look at people who are walking through this world and recognize a Christian when you see one? Answer, love. Love. So, sort of three points to the message. The first thing, sort of first trait, as Devin, as she was leading us in song this morning, the first trait that we're going to look at is that a, this sort of upward trait. What does upward love for Jesus look like? Well, the answer is to love Jesus means that you have a passion in your life for Christ above all else. What does it mean to love Jesus? It means to love Jesus above everything. Disciples of Jesus are motivated at their deepest level of who they are to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. A true disciple possesses a longing for a, a deeper intimacy with Jesus himself. They have a longing for the love of God through Christ to become not just a fact that is committed to memory, but a lived reality experienced daily. They enjoy a relationship that's built on a foundation of mutual and supernatural love. Disciples of Jesus should continually find themselves asking God for a deeper sense of who he is. And when they get a taste, when they catch a glimpse of him and his unmatched all satisfying glory, there are two things that happen simultaneously. One, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And two, they find themselves wanting more. They find themselves wanting more. Now, if we look at the text, this is precisely what we see that Jesus is sort of getting after with his interaction with the disciple Peter. This is why Jesus asks Peter this simple question, do you love me? This is, be sure of it, the first, the last, the most fundamental question in Christian discipleship. It is, in fact, the first question that is posed by Jesus in the Gospel of John to the disciples. If you remember in John chapter 1, John the Baptist directs the disciples to Jesus. And as they begin to follow Jesus, Jesus stops dead in his tracks, turns around and sees the disciples who are beginning to pursue him now. And he asks them a simple question. What are you seeking? What do you want? Same question. It lays underneath every question he asks them and demands that he places on them throughout their journey with him. And here at the end of the gospel, during the restoration and recommission of this deeply loved but deeply flawed disciple, Jesus asks the question again. Do you love me? What do you want in this world above all else? Peter, is it me? See, Jesus is after Peter's heart. 
And this question exposes not just what's in his heart, but also who he is as a person. J.C. Ryle, when talking about this chapter, says this, Life or death, heaven or hell, depend on our ability to answer a simple question. Do you love Christ? He goes on and says a true Christian is not a mere baptized man or woman. He or she is something more. He's not a person who, who only goes as a, as a matter of form to church on Sundays and lives for the rest of the week as if there was no God. Formality, he says, is not Christianity. Ignorant lip worship is not true religion. The true Christian is, is one whose religion is in his heart and life. There's one thing in a true Christian which is eminently peculiar to him. And that thing is to love Christ. See, wants and longings and love is at the very core of who we are as humans. And from that love flows actions and behavior. Scripture identifies the heart as the epicenter of the human person. And that's why in Proverbs we're told that we are to keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flows the springs of life. See, see, Jesus is not interested in being a person that, that Peter simply knows about. A bunch of teachings and facts that have been sort of deposited in his head or lodged in his memory. Jesus wants into Peter's heart. But even more than that, Jesus wants into the very center of Peter's heart. Jesus has zero interest in playing second fiddle, riding shotgun, or coming off the bench. Rather, he wants Peter to love him passionately above all else. That's precisely what he's after. And I think Jesus recognizes that Peter is at sort of a crossroads. I think he recognizes that Peter's struggling with this. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, the, the question he asks him is, do you love me, Peter, more than these. Now, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter and sort of the context of the, just the scene, they're sitting there, you know, just having eaten breakfast. There's sort of bones of fish laying around, a huge net that's heaping full of fish. Peter's dripping wet, just got off the boat, out of the water. The context is fishing. Remember, Peter was a fisherman. At the beginning of the chapter, Peter says, I'm going fishing. Remember, Jesus had just come back from the dead, had just been resurrected. The disciples have seen him. And there they are sitting around this charcoal fire. And the Lord asks him, do you love me more than these? The question we should be asking is, what are these? And there's a variety of different ideas or opinions on what these are referring to. I believe these are referring to fish. I think what Jesus is saying to Peter, what he's asking Peter is, this was your way of life, Peter. You were a fisherman. But I want for you a different path. I want to be higher than these fish. I want to be your new identity. I want you, Peter, to love me above all else, to find your identity not in catching fish, 
but in Jesus Christ. Peter had gone back to fishing. That's who he was. Jesus says, nah, that's not who you are, Peter. Do you love me more than these? Jesus wants to be first in his life, first in his heart. And the truth is, this morning, he wants the same for us. The same thing for you. He's coming to you this morning and he's asking you precisely the same question. Do you love me more than these? Now, I don't know what these are in your life, but we all have things that are competing on a regular basis for first place. Some of them are really good things. Some of them are wonderful gifts that God has given us. Some of them maybe not so much. Whatever they are, Jesus wants to be first. Do you love him? More than these? Second trait we see in loving Jesus is that the disciple who loves Jesus will have a heart of humble repentance. See, here's the deal. The closer one comes to God, the more they become precisely aware of just how unlike God they are. That's the natural result from an encounter with God. It's what happened to Job when he waited for the voice of God and when God showed up, showed himself to Job. Job said, I abhor myself. I repent in dust and ashes. I've spoken once. I will speak no more. I will take my hand and put it upon my mouth. It's what happens in Isaiah 6, this great vision that Isaiah has in the throne room. His response is, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am undone. So what Habakkuk, the prophet, says after Hall is complaining and finally hearing from the Lord, responds, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. This is the natural result from an encounter with a holy God. You are growingly, increasingly aware of how unlike God you are. What do you do with that discovery? What do you do when you realize how unlike God you are? Areas of your life that don't measure up, when you are repeatedly dropping the ball, when sin catches up to you, your stench is no longer able to be covered up or explained away. What do you do? Answer, repent. You repent. And we see, I think, a really wonderful picture of Peter doing just this in the text. It's a picture of repentance right here. The last time that Peter would have spoken in the presence of Jesus. You remember Peter's story. I mean, he massively dropped the ball. Let his closest friend, his leader, his Lord and Savior down. And in the moment when Jesus needed him the most, what did Peter do? Betrayed him. Denied him. Pretended like he didn't know him. Can you imagine being in Peter's place, knowing how you did Jesus wrong? And then watching your friend suffer and die, likely thinking to yourself, it's over. I messed up so royally, what I did, there's no way out of that. Can you imagine the, the grief, the sadness, the guilt that was rumbling around in Peter's heart? So it makes sense that as he's in the boat, and he hears that maybe, maybe there is another chance. 
Maybe I didn't mess things up so bad after all. In verse 7, it says, what does he do? He realizes it's the Lord. When he heard, he, he put on his outer garment, he stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Now, the other disciples didn't do that. Peter did that. Peter did that. Threw himself into the sea. And the picture that we have in John 21 is Peter, like nothing's going to stop him from getting to Jesus. He's got to get to him. He's, he's running to him. And then when he arrives on the shore and meets his Savior, when Jesus sees Peter, how does Jesus respond? Does he say, come on, come on now, Peter. You're, you're taking yourself far too seriously here, all right? Don't have such a preoccupation with your sin. Don't be so neurotic. You've got a guilt hang up. Get over it. Is that, what Peter, is that how Jesus responds? No. Nor does Jesus look at his servant dripping wet on the beach and say, suffer, you miserable creep. When I needed you the most, you weren't there for me. Is that how Jesus responds to Peter? Absolutely not. What Jesus does is he throws his arms open wide and he welcomes Peter in his sin, welcomes him in his presence, feeds him, restores him, recommissions him, says, I'm here. I want you in my presence. Take and eat. He has a plan for him. See, two things we must keep in, in mind as we consider this idea of repentance. First is the motive for repentance. See, repentance is not only sorrow over sin, but it also comes with a sense of the mercy of God in Christ. It's not the slap of God, but the embrace of God. It's not just turning from sin. It is that. Don't be mistaken. It is that. But it's so much more than that. It's turning from our sin to a God who is right there waiting. Who's ready to welcome you. Listen to how repentance is talked about in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. Repentance is an evangelical grace. It's a gift from the gospel, a gift from God himself offered to broken, sinful, needy men and women who've had enough of themselves and who recognize their desperate need for help. It's an act of grace. Yes, it's first given to us as we begin our walk with Jesus, but it's also given to us throughout our journey over and over and over again. That's why Luther in his 95 thesis begins, he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be of repentance. Over and over and over again. Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. It's the motive. The second thing we have to keep in mind is the outcome. What's the outcome of repentance? It's not simply a restoration back to the status quo. A path back to normal. A, a, a way to get back to sort of where we were before we sinned. Evading the consequences of sin. The outcome of true repentance is actually new obedience. 
unprecedented obedience, newness of life. True repentance is it's hope inspired in unmatched grace. Through it, Jesus is restoring his people to his image. It changes us. And if you know sort of Peter's story, you know that this moment certainly redefined and reshaped. It, it changed him as a person. You know, if you go to his letter in, in 1 Peter chapter 5 where he speaks specifically, he writes specifically to elders and shepherds of the flock. Listen to how he begins that great section in chapter 5. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. When he talks about elders and pastors, when he encourages the leaders of God's people, he calls them shepherds. Shepherd the flock that is among you. This is significant. In this interaction, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He, he's drilling into Peter who he is as a person. It's significant that Peter does not say in 1 Peter chapter 5, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Be fishers of men. It would have made sense pre this moment. Why? Because Peter was a fisherman. But his entire identity has changed. He is a shepherd. His act and moment of repentance has dramatically changed him from here on out. Repentance is a trait of being a follower of Jesus, somebody who loves God. It's a natural result of an encounter with the holy God. As followers of Jesus, the more we learn Jesus, the more we grow in affection and love for Jesus, we will have a growing awareness of our own sinfulness. We should be open to correction and criticism. We should reject spiritual pride, not be afraid to be wrong. Approach God on the basis of Christ's work alone. Possess a growing comprehension that God finds his, our weaknesses attractive and not repulsive person who loves Jesus is going to have a humble heart of repentance. Third, third trait. This is the outward trait that's really, I mean, to me is so obvious in this text. Is what makes this text, I think, so wonderful. Is that the individual who loves Jesus will also have a love for Jesus' people. I'm going to say it one more time. For the individual who loves Jesus, they will also have a love for Jesus' people. See, love for God's people is inextricably linked to love for God. You see it right here in the passage, clear as day. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Over and over and over again. Do you love me, Peter? The answer is yes. This is what it looks like. You see the connection? For Jesus, your love for him looks like an expanding and deepening affection 
not just for him, but also for his people. It looks like you have a longing to spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ. It means you have an openness to bear the burdens of those who are around you. The burdens of the people in this church. A deep curiosity you'll have about the personality of others. Their unique gifts and their unique needs. It means that if you're loving people well, you're going to carry them with, through struggles. Celebrating their victories. When they weep, you weep. When they rejoice, you rejoice. This is what loving Jesus looks like. And, and Jesus connects us for us throughout his ministry as well. You know, you can think of my mind goes right away to the, the great commandment when he's asked, what is the, the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And the second, he says, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second commandment, Jesus says, loving your neighbor is like the first commandment. Loving God is like loving each other. And then one of the, the last lessons that Jesus leaves with his disciples, if you remember the scene where he's, you know, shortly before he's crucified, they're in the upper room and, and, and Jesus is there washing his disciples' feet in a, a tremendous and just wonderful act of service and humility. And then Jesus, at the end of John chapter 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. See, this idea of loving one another, for Jesus, he, he, he has modeled it for us. When we look at the person of Jesus, the life that he lived, we get an idea of what it looks like to love each other. He models it for us. And then here in 13, not just does he just say, here, do as I have done, he also says, you should love. You need to love. He commands it. He commands our love for one another. But then even more than that, What's so amazing about these verses here in John chapter 13 is that he says, listen, this is my plan. If you do this well, not just are you making sort of your life tolerable with one another. More than that, the, the, there's a purpose that transcends even that. What he's saying is the world around you will be able to see me by the way you love one another. You know, I think of all the amazing ways that this church loves and cares for each other. Whether it's in context of a community group. I, I think of like, it's Tuesday morning, there's, there's some women that are out there having coffee and, and studying the Bible and diving into one of each other's lives. They're loving each other. If you're in a community group, that's one of the primary goals of the group is to be in community with people as you love one another. When there are, there are losses in, in, in our congregation, the church rallies together and cares for individuals who lose people. When there's weddings in the congregation, the church steps up and celebrates with one another through life. Do not undersell the importance of these moments. What you are doing when you love each other well is you are putting the glory of Jesus on display for the world to see. It's a part of us accomplishing the very purpose that Jesus put us on this planet to make much of him. And the way we get to do that is by loving each other. By loving each other. You know, last week, we always have at East Campus a, 
9.30 prayer time just to pray for Sunday morning. And there's a, a number of folks that, that go there. And I thought it was so, so sweet. There was a, a, a woman there who prayed one simple line last week in anticipation of just stepping out there and meeting a bunch of people on a Sunday morning. Her simple prayer was this, Lord, help us to listen to people this morning. That's what she prayed. Help us to listen. Give us ears that hear people. Let's not look over their heads or through them to somebody else. Let's be present with them. Let's listen. I thought, what a wonderful prayer. What a wonderful way to love people well this very morning. Listening to them. Notice that Jesus demonstrates his love for us by coming to us. He did not love us from afar. He came right down to where we are, recognized our greatest need, and paid the highest price so that we can be with him. He's an incarnational God, and he's called us to be an incarnational people. This is a job that can't be hired out. This is a job that he has enlisted his people to. Loving him means loving one another well, let's be the type of church that does that. Let's make a big deal about Jesus right here in Iowa City by loving each other. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that you are a God who loves us. Lord, you have shown us your love. Thank you that you're a, a God who welcomes us into your presence. Lord, even though we're a people who, who struggle with this, who want to place other things higher than you or who have let other things into our hearts, Lord. You have given us, even this morning, an opportunity to repent, to say, no, 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 no. I want Jesus in my life. I want Jesus first in my heart. This is a chance right now to do just that. I pray that we wouldn't miss it as a people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who, who get really excited about just putting our love for you on display for others to see. Lord, I thank you that the love that you have called us to show is a love that is visible, that can be seen. I pray you'd increase our love for one another. Lord, that you'd give us eyes that, that see needs around us and that respond in love to those needs. Give us ears that are listening to the people that you've put in our path, in our life, Lord, that we would love them well. Help us to be a church that is crazy in love with Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen.